Amen. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat. Um, man, thank you guys for leading us this morning, and uh, it's always a privilege of mine to be able to, sorry, I'm, I didn't get choked up in first service, but I am now, but it's such a privilege to be able to stand and to be led in worship by our team, and I'm so thankful for uh, just the, the, the team that the Lord has assembled, and to be able to worship alongside of you is, it was amazing. So thank you for worshiping with us today. Yeah, we can thank my name is Chris, and uh, I'm the worship director here at Christ Church. It's my privilege to be able to, to stand up here this morning and to be opening up God's Word for us. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open it up to Psalm 96, and that's where we're going to be here this morning. We're in our series, The Songs of Summer, where we are walking through um, a bunch of psalms throughout the summer. So it's a super creative uh, title for this series, as you can tell, and um, we're going to be in Psalm 96 this morning. And as you're turning there, um, I want to begin our time uh, together this morning with a question for you. So listen up. Here it is. Here's the question. When was the last time that you considered what is the great end of your existence? What is your purpose? What are you here for? Now, like some of you are like, Chris, I'm still turning to Psalm 96. Like you're going existential on me already. Like it's okay. Keep turning there. We're going to have some time to unpack that a little bit this morning. Pastor Jeremy kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit. We're going to be focusing on uh, what is the great end of our existence. And if you're like me, there's so many different things in our lives that are clamoring for our attention and for our time and our focus. I've got a schedule and a routine and, and deadlines to meet that sometimes I'm just like, what's the great end of my existence for today? <laughs> Not just eternally. Who even has the time to think about their eternal purpose or what is the great end of their existence? Well, today, for the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to have a time to think about what is the great end of our existence. And so um, if you've got your Bible open to Psalm 96, I will meet you there in one second. But when I get confronted with a question like this, like what is the great end of my existence? And it's a big question. And sometimes when I'm thinking about a big question, I like to turn to a big thinker to help me process through that, somebody who's got a little bit more uh, knowledge than I do. And so I turn to John Calvin for this one. You may have heard of him before. He is the namesake of uh, Calvin University in Grand Rapids and uh, one of the leading figures of the Protestant Reformation that happened in the 1500s. And so uh, John Calvin said this. He said, we should consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. Now I have to admit when I read this, that this surprised me a little bit, that a man of his uh, theological mind uh, would say that worship is the target, not uh, to know God in his word or not to be a pro-expert evangelist, but that we would be found numbered among the worshipers of God, that worship was the target. But it shouldn't surprise us because this idea is not just an original idea to John Calvin. It was inherent in the teaching of Jesus. Look what he said in John chapter 4, verse 23, where Jesus said, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You know, God isn't lacking anything. He is all-sufficient. He has no needs whatsoever. And so why in the world would a God who has no needs be actively seeking something because we seek the things that we value. We seek the things that are important to us. And so if God values worship and he values true worshipers so much that he is actively seeking for them in the hour that is now here in this day and age right here for you and me, I don't know about you, but I want to be found numbered among them, and I want to be found numbered among the true worshipers of God. And so uh, we're going to be in Psalm 96, like I said this morning, and uh, we're going to see this main theme all throughout this psalm, and it is this, the, the 
end of my existence, the great end of my existence is to be a true worshiper of God. So Psalm 96, I'm gonna read this for us this morning and then we'll dive into it a little deeper here. So this is what it says in verse one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and he is greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, as we... um, open up your word and as we spend some time this morning focusing on the aspect of our identity as a worshiper, God, I pray that um, you would speak to us. I pray that you would have, um, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate these words from your Bible that you have preserved for us and uh, God, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would not allow us to leave this place today the same as when we came in, that your Spirit would be moving among us and changing us and shaping us to look more and more like Jesus. And that is our prayer this morning. We pray all of these things in his name, amen. All right, so if the great end of your existence, if the great end of my existence is to be a true worshiper of God, how do we become a true worshiper? What does that look like? And so to start, I thought I would give us a pretty clear definition of what worship actually is because there are like hundreds, if not thousands of really good definitions for worship. But I tried to find like one that was super simple and attainable for us this morning. And so this is what I found. It says, worship is a recognition of and a response to the worth of God. So I see him as being worth something and I'm going to respond based off of what I've seen him being worth. And so as we take a deeper dive into this passage, we're going to see three qualities of what a true worshiper is, what a true person who sees the worth of God and and responds accordingly. And the first response is that true worshipers have a song to sing. Did you know that um, the Bible mentions over 400 times singing? And of those 400 times, 50 of them are direct commands that we are told, we are commanded to sing to the Lord. And in this verse, in in this passage, we see not once, not twice, but three times in the first two verses, the command to sing to the Lord. Now, I want to be clear with this. I I do believe that all of life is worship, and there's aspects of our life that are uh, an an act of worship that is more than singing, but it's super clear to see right here in these first two verses and through a study of God's word that singing is very near to God's heart, and it is the way that he has commanded us to worship him. But God doesn't just command us to worship him with singing. He commends it. 
He delights in it. He loves to hear us sing to him. And in this first section of Psalm 96, we see five specific characteristics of what the true worshiper's song is. And what is the song that brings the Father joy when we sing to him? And the, the true worshiper's song is new. That's the first one. Sing to the Lord a new song. I've made the mistake in the past of, of seeing this and being like, oh, this is like the proof text for like abandoning hymns and old songs. Like God said, just sing a new song. But I don't think that that's what he's communicating in this passage. I think what he's actually saying in this is that we are never to go through the motions when we sing to him. That every song that we sing, whether it was written two weeks ago or 160 years ago, like the one we just sang, Holy, 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 we are to enter into that and sing it as if it were a new song with new and fresh realities and experiences of God's grace in our lives as we allow his truth and allow these experiences of his grace, his mercies that are new to us every morning. If we believe that, we can sing wholeheartedly a new song to the Lord every time that we sing to him. His, the worshiper's song is new. Um, sometimes, uh, things grow that have become kind of like, if you, the longer you get to know something, the less it wears off the excitement. Anybody who's uh, married, been married for more than three weeks maybe knows that like the longer that you get married, the excitement kind of wears off a little bit, right? And that can be the truth, that can be true with songs that we sing. It's like, oh, like I've sung this on my whole life and so I can kind of just go through the motions of it, but that's not what God's calling us to do. He's calling us to sing and to worship him with a new and a fresh expression of praise. So true worshipers sing a new song to the Lord, but they also sing vertically to the Lord. That's the second aspect here. The command to sing to the Lord occurs three times in the first two verses here. And so this is the target. And this is the goal of everything that we do here at Christ Church. And when we gather to worship, <clears throat> our goal is to sing vertically to the Lord. We want to be ascribing the glory and ascribing the worth that he is due in our singing. And so we sing directly to him. We want to focus not on ourselves, not on our situations or our circumstances, but on what he has done and who he is. So we sing to him. We've already done that this morning when we sang holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. Like we're, we're declaring these things about him when we're singing to him. And we're gonna do it again here in a little bit. So get excited about that. But we wanna get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus and ascribing worth to him vertically. But did you know that when we uh, gather together to sing as a church, that we are not just to sing to him, but that our singing is meant to edify and to encourage each other horizontally. That's the third aspect of the worshiper's song that we see in this passage is that it is horizontal. Look at verse three. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So there's no part of the Christian life, as you heard us say this many times in this church, there's no part of the Christian faith that is meant to be lived alone. We need each other. We need to be encouraging each other and stirring each other up and building each other up to love and to good works. And that is not just true of small groups, which is when we usually talk, we're talking about when we say that. It is also true in worship and in our times of corporate worship together. And so um, sometimes it happens explicitly in the songs that we sing. I can think of um, one of my favorite songs we sing here, Raise a Hallelujah. And we get to the bridge of that song and it's like, sing a little louder. And I'm like, singing that to myself in a way, like, come on, I've got more in me. I can sing a little bit louder here. But I'm also looking down the row and I'm like, hey, sing a little louder. Like, I, I heard you laughing out in the hallway louder than you're singing right now. I know you've got more volume in you. So come on, sing a little bit louder. That's what we're, we, we stir each other up. We encourage each other. We edify each other 
with our singing. And so it happens explicitly, but it also happens in ways that are some of my most cherished and some of my most favorite times of worship when I see the vertical worship of the people around me inspiring and, and causing me to go deeper in my own worship with the Lord. I can think of um, a couple years ago, we introduced a song to our church called God of Revival. And there's a bridge in that song. It says, um, there's no pr prison wall that you can't break through. There's no mountain you can't move. All things are possible. And if you were in our church a few weeks ago, you, um, we, we shared that video testimony of uh, Dylan and how he was uh, in prison and how he got saved in prison and the Lord redeemed his life. And in that time he met Sarah. And at the time that we introduced that song, um, Sarah was in my small group and, and we were hearing from her, her story of how like God had saved her fiance at the time, how she had saved, he had saved him through, while being in prison. <laughs> and I see her singing that song in the second row. She was sitting right there and we introduced this song for the first time and she's singing those words. There's no prison wall you can't break through, no mountain you can't move, all things are possible. And when I saw that, I could barely get the words out of my own mouth because I was so stirred up and so choked up to see her declaring that faithfully. And that is why we are called to declare his glory among the peoples. Because we can stir each other up, we can encourage each other in the ways that we worship. And you cannot get that type of an encouragement by only uh, engaging with worship through YouTube videos or uh, singing along in your car. It has to happen in the presence of other people. It has to happen in a community that you know and that you belong to. And so we sing vertically to the Lord, but we also sing horizontally to stir up and to e encourage each other. But we also sing truthful songs. That's the fourth aspect here. Uh, Jesus said that God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so look at some of these truths that we see David proclaim here in verses four to six. He says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Uh, that phrase, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Um, in the original Hebrew, the word for gods there is Elohim, and worthless idols is Elohim. So David is using kind of a play on words. He's using creativity and rhyme and rhythm to make a specific truth that he wants uh, to stick with the people that were to sing this song. And so I love that God allows us to use creativity to combine the, the rhythm and rhyme of music with the truth of his word to be able to help these truths stick with us, to, sit, to get cemented into our hearts and into our lives. So when we leave this place, we're not just left with a catchy melody, we're left with the truth of God in our hearts. Our, have you ever had a song stuck in your head? Like, like I, <laughs> I'm a parent of two two-year-olds and some of the songs that are played in my house will stay with me and it is, it's, it's it just, it's painful sometimes. Some of the songs, well, I'm mowing the lawn and I'm just like singing like, the more we get together together. You know, like we get these songs stuck in our heads and that is the power of music. God created music to stick with us. And so it's so important for us to make sure that the songs that we are singing are filled with accurate and true truths about who he is. And so I wanna make a commitment to you. Um, and I just want you guys to know that we are absolutely 100% committed in this church to singing songs that are filled with truth about God. Because above all else, we want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And when we find songs that are filled with truth but are also packaged in a way that are catchy or that are memorable and that are good songs that stick with us when we leave, we're allowing the word of Christ to dwell in our hearts richly. 
And those truths get cemented into our lives when we leave this place. And so we want to sing truthful songs. But we don't want to just sing truthful songs. We want to allow that truth to affect our emotions. And that's the fourth or the fifth aspect here. Look at verse four. Great is the Lord, and he is greatly to be praised. So what David is saying here, he's using another play on words to say that the magnitude of God's greatness, how great he is, should evoke in us a response that is of equal proportion to how great we perceive him to be. He is great, and he is greatly to be praised. So, so God, David and God is not just calling for our heads to be engaged with the truth, but he's calling for our hearts to be moved by these truths in worship. Music is a language of emotion. It's why uh, like the peak romantic gesture when you were in high school or college was to make a mixtape of, uh, of, uh, of songs, love songs for your significant other, for your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're like, hey, here's a playlist of songs that I have collected from other people's words of what I actually want to, you know, to feel like this is how I feel about you, right? It's, we've been doing this for generations. It was the mixtape, then it was the burned CD, and now it's the Spotify playlist, right? It's just like it happens. Like we want to communicate emotions through music. God created it as a way to engage our uh, emotions, and I believe wholeheartedly this is why he has commanded us to sing, because he knows that when we sing, we're allowing our emotions to be engaged with the truth, and he wants that from us. He wants our hearts, he wants our heads, he wants both of our heart and our mind to be engaged in worship. I love uh, this quote from Bob Coughlin, um, who's a pastor of Sovereign Grace Church. He says, we must not let the fear of man, wrong teaching, or complacency keep us from loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. For the wonders of creation, for the miracle of the new birth, for the sacrifice of his only son in our place, for the peace of his sovereign care, for the blessing of his word, for all of these and infinitely more, God deserves our highest and purest and strongest emotions. I love that. God deserves both your heart and your mind, and he wants to be not just the God of your doctrine, but the God of your devotion. Some of you are like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know if this is for me. I'm not really an emotional person. Um, and so like singing and engaging my emotions, that's not really my thing. Or maybe you grew up in a church where uh, <laughs> that was discouraged a little bit, where you're like, nope, you gotta stand and like not engage your emotions or your body or just like sing the song. And I want you to know that like we have compassion for that and we want to see you step into and grow in what God has called us to. But here's the thing that I want to say, and I want to say this as compassionately as I can, that emotional engagement with God in worship is not an issue of temperament, but an issue of obedience to his word. He has called us to do that. Half-hearted worship isn't actually worship. So whether you're introverted, extroverted, Wherever you are on the Enneagram scale of numbers, it doesn't matter. Like, God is above all of that, and he wants your head, and he wants your heart engaged when we sing to him. Um, a few years ago, Lauren and I had the opportunity to go see one of my favorite bands in concert when we were in Phoenix, Arizona, and we saw U2. And uh, there was an arena of, you know, 20,000 people. At, there's a picture from it, um, getting ready to sing, and everyone was just, like, belting out the classic U2 songs, like, at the top of their lungs and just going after it. And, 
you've ever been to a concert, you know that at the end of the concert, there's a moment where it's like the end of the show, but it's actually not really the end because like people keep clapping and the band comes out like, oh, I guess we'll sing one more um, that they plan to do all along. And uh, the song that they came out and, and sang as their encore was, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I remember in that moment, um, 20,000 people singing at the top of their lungs, even after the band had stopped playing and had walked off the stage, still singing at the top of their lungs, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Hands raised, like full expression of worship in that moment. And I just remember Lauren and I looked at each other with, and we had tears in our eyes, like struck by the irony of what we were experiencing. A room full of people passionately, loudly, unashamedly singing of their depravity that they still haven't found what they were looking for. You see, those, those people, that crowd knew how to worship. <laughs> they were singing a familiar song, but they were singing it as if it was a new song. They were definitely stirring each other up as they were singing. There was a passion and an emotion in the way that they sung. They were even boldly singing a truth, even if it was a tragically sad truth. But where they went wrong was that the object of their worship was misplaced. And I remember thinking, man, they're so close. <laughs> they're so close. They've got the form down right, but the object is wrong. And the more tragic part about this story is what happened when I came into church the following Sunday and was surrounded by a group of people who would claim that they have found what they are looking for, singing with a fraction of the passion and the zeal and the emotion of the people that I had just spent time at the concert with. S people who have found what they were looking for, singing as if they were still looking for it. True worshipers have a song to sing. And if you are in Christ, your voice, along with every other voice in this room, has been redeemed by your Creator and when you sing boldly and when you sing confidently, Jesus is presenting your offering of praise to God the Father in a perfect way for, your, for his glory and for your joy. And you might say, well, Chris, you haven't heard me sing. Like, I don't really have much of a voice. And the question is not whether or not you have a voice. It's do you have a song? And if you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and if you have been given a new heart and a new life, you absolutely have a song to sing, and it is the song of the redeemed for their Redeemer. And so the question that I have to ask in response to this is if we really believe this, are, are we content to let the world outsing us? I know I'm not. And so who is getting your loudest song? True worshipers are singers, and they have a song to sing. Second thing we're going to see here in this passage is that true worshipers have an offering to bring. Look at verses 7 and 8 here. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. So again, in the first two verses, we see a certain command appear three different times. And this command, ascribe, it means to give. And so worship is sacrificial. It costs us something. We must be offering something to the Lord in that. And so if worship is sacrificial, what is the offering of a worshiper? Well, first thing we see here is it's praise. Look at verses seven and eight. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So what David is saying here is that part of our offering is vocal. It is the vocal offering of praise. 
I love what Paul said in Hebrews 13, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So for the true worshiper, our offering of praise is a sacrifice, which means it costs us something. But if we're honest, like praise doesn't always cost us something. It's super easy for me when my little boys come up to me and are like, daddy, look what I did. And I'm like, oh, good job, buddy. You did a great job. Like that praise just flows freely. Or like if you've got a dog and you throw a tennis ball and the dog returns, you're like, hey, good boy or good girl. Like that kind of phrase just flows, praise just flows freely from us and easily. And it, I think it's even easy to offer praise to the Lord when things in our life are going well. But when does praise become sacrificial? When does it actually cost us something? Well, what about the times in our life when maybe God doesn't come through in the way that we had hoped? In the loss of a job? in the unfavorable medical results, the unfaithfulness of a spouse, the child who has wandered away from the Lord. Praising God in those storms costs us something. It takes an act of the will to lay down our life on the altar before a God that we don't understand. And when we do that, when we offer up our praise in those moments, what we're saying is, God, even though my life is not good right now, I know that you are good. And I'm gonna continue to praise you regardless of what's happening. And so we offer up a continual sacrifice of praise that uh, doesn't depend on like, sometimes I think we, our praise can ebb and flow based off of like God's job, job performance. Like, oh, God is like, being so good to me, so I'm going to reward him with an offering of praise. But that's not what Paul is calling to us when he says we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. We don't offer our praise on our terms as a reward to God for his blessings or his goodness to us. We, real praise continues and it never stops in any circumstance. So this is what it means to ascribe, to give to the Lord the glory and strength that are due his name. The worshiper's offering is praise and it never stops, but the worshiper's offering is also prepared. Look at uh, verse eight, the second half of verse eight there. There's two commands. It says, bring an offering and come into his courts. And as I read this, I was uh, struck by the order of these commands. It says, bring an offering and then come into his courts. And so what David is saying is that there's a preparation that is required. If you are going to enter into the courts, you should have something prepared to bring to him. And at the time that this was written, the offering that was prepared, uh, was brought into the temple, was an animal to be sacrificed. And so, uh, parents, if you think it's hard to like get your kids out the door to uh, get to church and like everybody in the car, imagine having to do that and then like, oh yeah, did you, someone grab the lamb? Like we gotta get the lamb in here with us too. Like there's an absolute preparation that is required to bring an offering to the Lord. And uh, the Israelites came to church prepared to give. They came prepared to contribute. And I believe that that's what this passage is calling us to do as well. There are three types of offerings that we can prepare to bring to our king. You might have heard this before. This is the three T's, time, talents, and treasure. So we prepare to bring our time. You know, there's literally thousands of things that are clamoring for our attention and our focus throughout the day. I heard it said recently that currently the most valuable commodity in the world is not Bitcoin, it's not money, it is attention. Because if you lose somebody's attention, you lose the ability to influence them in any way. And our attention spans are shrinking by the day. And so to give somebody your full attention, to give the Lord your full attention, undivided, is an offering. 
And that's what we, one way that we can offer to him, to lean in, to listen. We come prepared to offer him our time. We also can come prepared to offer our talents. So God has uniquely gifted every single person in this room to do something to build up the body of Christ that no other person on earth can do. So you have a gift that is unique to you. Nobody else has that gift. And we come prepared to offer our talents or our gifts that have been given to us as a way to say, God, I want to maximize the impact of what you are doing through your mission, through your gospel, through, and I wanna take part in it. I wanna offer up my talents and the gifts that you have given me as a way to serve you and to make much of your name. So we come prepared offered to offer our talents. And the last thing is treasure. You know, everything that you have has been given to you by God. He loves to give good gifts to his children for them to be able to enjoy. And it's not wrong to have things that God has given us, but it's wrong when those things have us, when those things grip a hold of our heart and we claim them as mine. Um, I love to give gifts to my boys. I love to be able to see them play with the little trinkets and toys that they, you know, two-year-olds, you can give them anything and they love it. Like they love a rock. Like, oh, I got a rock. But the, the thing is, it's very easy to see when that toy or that treasure has grabbed a hold of their heart and become an idol, right? You hear the, the M word, mine. No, it's mine. No, like, uh, hey, River, share your toy. No, it's mine. It's my toy. And it's easy to see that at a two-year-old and kind of be like, okay, he's two, he's learning. But at the same time, how many times do we say the same thing when we are asked to share the treasures that we have been given? That money is mine. I've earned it. I've worked hard for this money. Who are you to ask for some of that from me? That is mine. You can't have it. It's mine. Instead, when we bring our tithes or our offerings to the Lord, we're telling him, this isn't mine. This is yours. It always has been and it always will be. And my hope and my trust and my security is not found in what I see in my bank account, but it's in you and I'm gonna offer this back to you. And it takes preparation to come ready to offer our time, our talents and our treasures, but God is delighted when we do that. So what would it look like for you to appropriately prepare your offering of praise, your offering of your time, your talents, your treasures. The true worshiper's offering is prepared. But the third thing we see here is that the worshiper's offering is also physical. Look at verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. You know, the Hebrew word for tremble here is keel, which means to whirl, to dance, or to writhe in fear. And so what uh, David is saying is that when we are in the presence of holiness, there is a physical response that should happen in our, in our bodies. It's not just in my heart, it's in my body. But this isn't the only place in scripture where we see a picture of how we are to engage our bodies in worship. Uh, the Bible is full of commands to worship God or to praise him or to make a joyful noise or a variety of different words that we use associated with worship. Um, and there are actually 103 different Greek and Hebrew words that those words come from. And each of those 103 words has a little bit more of a nuanced flavor to it to help us understand exactly how we are to offer our praise or our worship or our thanksgiving to the Lord. And so basically, all of that to say that the Greeks and the Hebrews weren't lazy with their language like we can be with ours, right? So I can say, oh, I love tacos. Like, I really love a good taco. And then in the same sentence be like, I love my wife. 
but if I have the same value of love for both of those two things, that's a problem. But we have like words that we just kind of throw out there and mean the same thing in different ways that they are implied. And that happens when we see these words of worship or praise. So of these 103 words, there's a bunch of different qualities of how they are actually describing what the worship and praise should look like. And I'm just gonna run through a few of these. Pastor Brian has gone through these in more, in more detail and I encourage you to study it. But here's just five really quickly here. First, praise. In Psalm 149, verse three, the word in our Bible says praise. The Hebrew word for praise is machal, which means to dance. Psalm 100, verse one, make a joyful noise is what it says in our Bible. That means petsak, which is to burst forth with an explosion of sound. (laughs) So an explosion of sound is a little bit different than, oh, make a joyful noise. Like, no, it's an explosion of sound bursting forth. Uh, Psalm 95, verse six, worship means shakah, to bow down in reverence. There's a physical posture in that. Psalm 134, verse two says to lift up your hands. The word for that is nasah, which means to lift up your hands. So that one got translated really well. So just in case there's any confusion about that, there is a command to to lift up your hands in worship to the Lord. Psalm 118, verses 24, this one's my favorite. Um, The word in our Bible says rejoice. And the Hebrew word is gul, which means to spin around under the influence of violent emotion. Now, if anybody knows that reference, that is the the verse, uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us spin around under the influence of violent emotion and be glad in it, (laughs) right? That's what we're called to do. I think we say, oh, rejoice. Like, I'm gonna rejoice in my heart. But that's not what God's word says. And what the original intent was, there is a a response that that is big. It's not just, oh, I'm rejoicing. And here's the important part. All of these words are in the imperative uh, tense, which means that they're commands to us. And I just want to be super clear with this. As we look at this list, for some of us, this is very clearly where our praise, where like the sacrifice part comes in. You're like, yeah, that's going to cost me something (laughs) to do that. Like I see it now. I understand the sacrifice of praise, right? But here's the key to this. God has commanded us to offer these things. If we believe that, and if we see that in his word, and we refuse throughout our life, to never give him any aspect of our bodies in worship. What we're saying is, God, you're not worthy of that part of me. You commanded it, but you're not worthy of it. I'm not giving it to you. And so I'll raise my hands and pump my fists in victory when I win that game of cornhole, but not when I'm worshiping you in your presence. Or I'm gonna shout and celebrate and sing loudly when I'm in an arena for my favorite sports team, but not when I'm in your house. Or I'm gonna move my head nod my head, move my feet, tap my hand on the steering wheel, sing loudly to that country song when it comes on the radio. But when I get into the house of the Lord, I'm going to freeze up. What we're saying is God is not worthy of that. And we give our best efforts to other things in our life than we do to him. God has commanded us to love him with our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. And so certainly that means that our physical bodies are also to be engaged in worship. And we can offer that to the Lord, knowing that it, he delights in our heart when we do that. Um, just a couple months ago, I, I turned 33. I had a birthday in April, and my boys are two years old, and they uh, were going to give me a gift. Now, like, they had no idea it was my birthday. Like, Lauren had to help them with that whole process of, like, hey, let's prepare a gift for Dad. And so they gave me these little cards, and she, uh, they got colored scribbles on there, and, and Lauren was like, hey, like, what do you want to say to Daddy on his birthday card? And so Brooks, who's our like super sweet, emotional uh, child, he said this on the card that he wanted to give to me. He said, I love you from Brookie. Happy birthday with a scribble. I was like, oh, so sweet, Brookie. And she goes over to River, who's kind of our like distracted all over the place child. And she's like, River, what do you want to say to dad for his birthday? And this is what River said. 
I love motorcycles. <laughs> and so, like, I mean, I, I, obviously I know where I stand with him, but, um, but listen, like, I cherish those gifts. They're hanging in my office currently. You can go back there and see them hanging up in my office. And I cherish them, not because of the content of what was given to me in them. Those pieces of paper have no monetary value whatsoever. But they are from the hearts of my kids. And I love to receive a gift from the heart of my kids. And what made those special, those gifts special to me is that they weren't forced. Those kids, the, my kids freely offered their praise to me in, in, this, in the little piece of paper. Um, they spent time preparing them. They had very little talent, as you can see by the scribbles, but they offered their talents. And the treasures that they had, their pens and markers, they gave that all to me as an offering and as an expression of love, and it delighted my heart. And I think in the same way, like, listen, God doesn't need anything from us. He says that our best deeds are as filthy rags to him. He doesn't need them, but we offer them because he wants our hearts. And it's a way that we can express our heart to him in our worship and in our offerings. And so when we truly believe and we truly realize all that we have been given in Christ, we should be jumping at the opportunity to give God an offering. We never have any reason to appear before God empty-handed we always have an offering to bring. The true worshiper has an offering to bring. So what aspect of your offering or what aspect of your worship are you withholding from him? In your praise, in your preparation, in your physical posture, where does God not have all of you? He's after your heart. True worshipers never have a reason to appear before God empty-handed. True worshipers have an offering to bring. And the last point we'll see here as we wrap this up is true worshipers are on mission for the king. Look at verse 10 here. The true worshipers' mission is this. It is to the nations. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And this is a call back to verse three where we're told to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. What David is saying here is that while the object of our worship is Jesus, the audience of our worship is the watching world. And so this whole idea that we've heard like, oh, I'm just worshiping for an audience of one. Like that's a bunch of baloney. Like we have an object of one that is Jesus. Like we're gonna worship one name and one person, but we're gonna do it in the presence of the world and we want them to watch us because this is a message that we are proclaiming to them. We want them to see us worship. We want us, them to see us valuing him over the things of this world. And we want our audience of our worship to be the watching world. We don't do this alone though. This is the thing I love about this. We don't do this alone. We're doing this with creation. Let the heavens be glad. This is verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. I love this picture of creation that we see in this psalm, of a creation that is so eagerly anticipating the return of the king that it just bursts out in song. It bursts out in praise. And it reminds me of Luke 19 when like Jesus is on the triumphal entry and people are like, hey, can you like tell your disciples to be quiet? Like they're making too much noise. And he's like, listen, if they were to be quiet, even the rocks would be crying out my praise. Like creation is actively singing the praise of our God. So we are not alone when we are on mission. We are 
on mission with creation. And what is the a proclamation of this celebration that we see from creation? What are they proclaiming? What are they excited about? It's the last verse of this passage. They proclaim God's coming judgment and salvation. Look what it says in verse 13. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So Jesus Christ, the Lord over all creation, the King over all the earth, is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And you can deny him all you want. You can dismiss what his word says as stories that are not relevant for today. You can say, I'm gonna live for the things of this world, whatever woos your attention, whatever woos your heart, and say like, I'm gonna chase after that. You can do all of that, but you will have to stand before the judge who is coming and give an account for what you've done with this life. He is coming. The judge is coming. And I think if we're honest, that's the message that when we read that, um, that's what causes the, the trembling, <laughs> the keel, the trembling in the presence of holiness. It stirs up a little bit of righteous fear in us. But if the, if the story ended there, if that was it, like if that's what creation was proclaiming and if that's what we were to proclaim, it wouldn't make sense to see that emotion of joy and of celebration. Like, hey, he's coming and death is coming too. Like that wouldn't make sense. So why is there a reason to celebrate the coming of the judge? The reason that creation can sing for joy and celebrate the return of the judge and the reason that you and I can do the same thing is because the judge that is coming is not just the judge who has a judgment for sin to be delivered and administered and a punishment to be handed out. It's the same judge who sets down the gavel, steps off the bench, removes the robe, stands in the place of the defendant and says, I'm gonna offer myself as payment for the punishment that I just administered. That's the gospel. The judge is coming. And if you have accepted that gift of salvation, that gift of freedom, the gift of new life, and have surrendered your life to Jesus and you have put on the identity of a true worshiper, then when the judge comes, you have no punishment to fear. You have a reason to celebrate. You have a reason to sing and to declare the coming of the judge because there's not a punishment coming for you. There's a reward. And so true worshipers make it their mission to declare this message to the world who desperately needs to hear it. And so let this be said of our church. Let this be said of Christ church that we will gather to worship as the church but we will scatter to continue worshiping and be the church. Our worship is not, just to meant, is not just meant to happen within these walls. It is meant to extend to the nations outside of these walls into the watching world to be seen and to be heard. We will proclaim to the nations that the judgment is coming, but that the judge has mercy and forgiveness for everyone who would surrender their life to him and under his authority. And so this is what we mean when we say, I'm going to make Christ famous to everywhere, everyone, everywhere, every day. I wore this shirt just for this point. This is what it means when we say that. This isn't just a phrase that looks good on a shirt or in a Facebook status or on a webpage. This is our mission, that I will live to make Christ famous to everyone, everywhere, every day by proclaiming that the judgment is coming, but that the judge has offered salvation 
for all who would believe in him. So Christ Church family, what is your loudest proclamation? Who are you actually living to make famous to everyone, everywhere, every day? True worshipers live on mission for their king. And we should find it the great end of our existence to claim that as a true worshiper of God. And so as we wrap this all up, as we tie this together this morning, um, at Christ Church, we're, we're committed to worship. Uh, it's one of the four pillars of our church. You've seen them on the plaques in the lobby. The four pillars of our church are unapologetic preaching. We're gonna boldly proclaim the word of God. Unashamed worship, we're gonna worship passionately. Um, unceasing prayer, we're gonna continue to pray without ceasing and unafraid witness. We're gonna have this bold witness to the world. And those have been the, the pillars of our church from the beginning and they'll continue to be key pillars that we will build this church upon. But did you know that when we get to the literal end of our existence, on this earth that only one of those is going to remain on into eternity. Preaching will cease to exist because we won't need the word of God anymore when we're in the presence of, of the living word of God, Jesus Christ. Pastor Brian's gonna be out of a job when he gets to heaven. I mean, he's on sabbatical right now, so it's basically like he's preparing for that anyways, but <laughs> that was a joke. Don't tell him I said that. Um, but preaching will cease to exist. Prayer will cease to exist in heaven because Emmanuel, God with us, is present among us. We won't need to approach him in prayer when he's right there. Witness will cease to exist because obviously everybody who's there has already been reached. But what is the one part of our church that will continue on into eternity? Worship. And it's gonna be the loudest and the most expressionate and the most passion-filled song of praise that you have ever heard in your life as all of those who have come behind us join with all of those who come after us and all of us and all of the angels and the elders are around the throne declaring and singing with all of the passion that they can muster up that there is one who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Come on, yes. And so that is the target. That is the great end of our existence, but it is also the end of our existence in this life. And when we gather as a church week after week on Sundays, it's just like the dress rehearsal for that day. So we come prepared to practice what that day will look like for us, all right? That's what we're gonna do. And I've got a team of people up here who stand up here with me every week. And all we're doing is we're saying, hey, come on, come with us, please. There is something that is greater than the ways that the things of this earth that woo our hearts, that want our affections, there's something that is greater than that. And we have an opportunity to gather together and to declare that week after week that there's one name that is worthy of our praise and it's Jesus Christ. So true worshipers have a song to sing and we sing it boldly. True worshipers have an offering to give and we give it freely. But true worshipers also live on mission for our King and we know that that mission will never stop until Christ returns. And we make it the great end of our existence to be a true worshiper of God. So let's pray together this morning. Father, we, um, we just come before you and we ask that you would, first, that, that you would forgive us of the ways that we have not seen our identity as a true worshiper and have not claimed these things to be true in our lives. And God, would you forgive us for our lack of 
compassion in our song would you give us for with, forgive us for withholding our offering from you and God would you forgive us for the ways that we have uh, pursued the mission of so many other things but the mission that you have laid over our lives and God we surrender these things at your feet and we ask that you would move among us that you would continue to grow our understanding of what it means to be a true worshiper God that you would uh, give us a passion in our hearts to worship you with we love you Lord it's in your name we pray amen all right let's stand to our feet this morning and we're gonna have an opportunity to respond and so with all the passion that we have in us with all of the joy in our hearts for what God has done let's sing these last two songs to the Lord because he's worthy of it all right come on let's sing together <laughs>